Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. How are you? I'm not Pastor Preston, I know, don't be disappointed, but I'm only a couple of years older than him. Do you believe that? You see how gullible the crowd is today. Good to be with you. I'm Pastor Brady. I've known Pastor Preston and Pastor Holly for like 20 years, and we've been longtime friends, and so it's an honor to get to be a part. I missed last year because of COVID, and so I did not get to come to the desert, and I attribute every bad thing that happened last year to the fact that I did not get to come and breathe in some desert air last year, okay? So I'm back. We've taken some deep breaths, and by the way, this morning, I'm checking out of the hotel. There's a 25, 30-pound bobcat walking right past me when I walked out the back door this morning just kind of sanering right in front of me. He was not terrified. I was. And he just acted like he owned the place. So I allowed him to own the place. So it's good to be in Arizona. My wife, Pam, is with me here. She's been my wife for 31 and a half years. Is that right? That's right. We got married when we were 12. It was the scandal of the seventh grade. But we've made it. It's been great. <laughs> and uh, she, she, gets, she looks younger every year, and I don't. So I'm kind of beginning to have a little problems with that. But it's good to have her with me. And I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Nahum. Now, if you can find Nahum without looking at the table of contents, you're going to heaven. All right? So see if you can do that. I'm going to give you plenty of time to look at that. And I just want to say to Pastor Preston, Pastor Holly, we just love them so much. We, started, we worked together at Gateway Church over 20 years ago, and he's just a dear friend. And can we just say this? You guys, I don't know, I know you know this, all right? But I, sometimes you need a person from the outside to remind you, you belong to a really good church, and you have a really, really good pastor that leads you. Can we just honor them today? They're watching online right now. It's an honor Pastor Preston and Pastor Holly. Now, I want to warn you ahead of time that I'm going to tell kind of a disturbing story up front, okay? So just bear with me. It's not a story that I like to tell. In fact, Pam does not like me to tell this story. But because of the text that we're going to look at and the topic that we're going to look at today, I felt compelled to tell you a very vulnerable story. It's a little dark, but I promise you it's going to get super hopeful. Is you okay with that? You okay with real and honest at church? All right, so I want to talk to you today about God being our defender. God is our defender. And a lot of people, when they think about God, they say, well, God is love, God is kind, God is forgiving, uh, God is gracious. But very few people understand that actually one of the immutable traits of God, in other words, one of the things about God that cannot change is that God is also our defender. He comes to our defense. He comes to our aid. He comes to make things right. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever been defenseless? Have you ever been bullied? Have you ever felt like you were in a position of powerlessness? In other words, you were in a position where the powerful could harm you and you had no way of defending yourself. Maybe you've never experienced that. Maybe you were big for your size and you were the biggest kid in class and no one's ever bothered you. But when I was a freshman in high school, I weighed 128 pounds. Now, I've gained 15 pounds since then, okay, just a little bit. But I was 128 pounds. I'd had two open-heart surgeries as a little kid, so I felt frail. I felt, I felt weak. 
But for whatever reason, I was an above average athlete. So my freshman year of high school, five foot six, 128 pounds, I was on the junior varsity baseball team, and our high school had a really good baseball program. And so the varsity team, it was no way I was going to make varsity, but I'd made the junior varsity. Well, like halfway through the, the, the season, a group of seniors on the varsity got, had some kind of argument with the coach, and they all got thrown off the team. Suddenly, there's these open spots on the varsity team, and the coach came to me and said, hey, Brady, could you help us? come play on the varsity team, and of course, I'm a freshman, you know, like, to get a chance to play on the varsity team, of course. And so I became the starting center fielder for my high school baseball team. I'm 15 years old. I'm just a tiny kid. But right away, the older upperclassmen on the team did not like it that I had taken their friend's spot. And so the hazing kind of began right away, like, um, I wouldn't, by today's standards, it would have been awful, but, but the story I'm about to tell you is criminal. And so one day, uh, I remember this very vividly in my mind, we're at the end of baseball practice, and somebody comes out and yells at the coach, hey coach, you need to take this phone call. This is before cell phones, by the way. Everything was landline like 30 years ago, all right? So he had to leave us. He walked up to the gym to take an important phone call, and I was left alone with this group of baseball players, seniors and juniors, uh, men, young men that were much older, much bigger than me. And they held me down on the baseball field, tied my hands behind my back, put a rope around my neck, a noose, and drug me around the field, mocking me, laughing at me. I, I almost passed out. I, I thought I was going to die. I thought they were going to break my neck. And when they finished, they untied my hands, and I had a bloodied scar. I don't know if you've ever seen Clint Eastwood and Hang 'Em High. All the people over 50 know that movie. But there was like a scar around my neck right here. Blood. It was a mess. And this was in the day where you didn't go home and tell your parents if you had been bullied. It was kind of a disgraceful thing to go home and admit to your father that someone had mistreated you. Now, this is a school... This is in the spring of my freshman year in high school. In the fall of that year, I had been robbed at knife point at the fall festival. Listen, this is not a good school year. I don't know if your school year is going horribly wrong. Let me just tell you about the school year from hell, okay? So in the fall of that year, we had the fall festival. And I had won a bunch of prizes, and I was walking out to my parents' car to put my prizes in the car and a guy came up behind me, put his arm around my neck, and stuck a knife in my ribs. He punctured my skin and took all of my stuff. This is the school I went to, right? I'm a survivor of high school. And, and so I, the next day, I realized it was a kid in my own class. His name is Lance. And Lance, if you're watching from the federal penitentiary, I hope you're doing well. Hope you're recovering. We love our prisoners, especially you, Lance. And I'm sure he's there. So the point is, I told my principal... I said, Lance robbed me last night at knife point. And the principal, not a smart guy, said, well, we can't have that. And we can't have armed robbery in the parking lot, of course. So he suspended him for two days, and I never got my stuff back. Now, I'm telling you that story is because when this happened in the spring, when I was obviously violated, harmed, violence, I was under the impression that they were going to get away with it again. Because the same group of guys that had robbed me in the fall got away with it. No jail time, two-day suspension, basically a long weekend vacation. 
fast forward, these young guys have harmed me greatly, and I'm thinking to myself, they're going to get away with it. The powerful are always going to get away with it. Now, the book of Nahum was written right after, so you, you, know, the, you know the story of Jonah. So the book of Nahum is a companion piece to the book of Jonah. And Nahum the prophet prophesies to the nation of Israel that in spite of the Assyrian army who was bearing down on Israel, Nahum came to remind the people of God that God was not going to let them always get away with it that God was their defender. Now, the Assyrians, at this point, were the first professional army in that part of the world. They were known barbaric terrorists. They were fierce. Nobody could stop the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, when they came in, they, not only did they capture people, but they scattered people. They had learned a long time ago that capturing people was not enough. They actually would capture groups of people and then scatter those groups of people to the four winds, knowing that if they scattered a community, that community could never gather back and defend itself. So Nahum, the prophet, Spirit of God, comes upon him. The Assyrian army is coming down hard on the northern part of Israel. Nahum belongs to the southern part of Israel. He's watching his cousins get bullied. Go to Nahum, I've gave you all that time to find Nahum, or I gave you more than enough time to find Nahum. Nahum chapter 1, look at what he says. Spirit of God comes upon this man. The nation is being bullied. And listen to his response. He says, the Lord is good. I want to remind you that when you feel oppressed, when you feel pressured, when you feel like you're under attack, the first thing you should remind yourself in that moment is the Lord is indeed good. In spite of my circumstances, no matter what is going on around me, let me remind you today, if you walk out of here with just one thing in your heart, let me remind you today, the Lord is good. Can somebody say amen to that if you know the Lord is good? A refuge in times of trouble. And he cares for those who have put their trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, and this is where Nahum is beginning to, trying to call courage back to the people of Israel. He says, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Now, if you know the story of the Bible, Jonah, the guy that was swallowed by the big fish and spit up on the beach, and then you know the story of Jonah. Jonah was called to go to these very people. And tell them, repent, or the judgment of God is coming to you and your land. And to Jonah's surprise, 80 years earlier, the Ninevites repented. Made him really mad. If you read the story, it's a great story. Really upset him that the Ninevites would dare repent and receive the grace of God, but that's exactly what they did. Fast forward 80 years, the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, were back to their old habits. Back to their evil ways. And Nahum says in verse 13, skip down to verse 13, because if you read the book of Nahum, the tone of his language changes in verse 13. And he, he says, he uses the language, this is a word from God. This is a thus saith the Lord. And in verse 13 he says, now I will break their yoke from your neck and I will tear your shackles Away. 
Now, I'm preaching through the minor prophets right now, and the reason I shared that per deeply personal story with you is because this is exactly what Nahum is seeing happening. The people of Israel felt suffocated. They felt, they felt violated, and they wondered, does God even see this? Does God, is God going to act on our behalf? Is God going to do anything about this? Now, 400 years earlier, King David had written something, and I want you to turn with me to the 23rd Psalm because I want to show you of what God is up to when you feel violated. What is God really doing in seasons where you feel bullied? How can God take a situation like I just described, <clears throat> the story that I just told, how can God take that story and redeem it? How can God take your story and redeem it? Now, we all know the 23rd Psalm, if you've been in church more than a few years, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, lies down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters, restores my soul. Everybody loves the first three verses. It's verse four that nobody likes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Nobody, we skip over that. And then in verse five, he says something almost as alarming as verse four. Psalm 23, verse five says, you, God, David's talking about God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now leave that up just for a moment. That makes no sense. That, what is he saying? What God is saying is that he wants to do more than just taunt our enemies on our behalf. Actually what God does, and only God can do this, is he prepares a table. Now this table is a place where you have food, where you eat. In other words, it's a place of safety, it's a place of conversation. It's a place of rest. Safety, conversation, and rest happens around a dinner table, right? That was supposed to happen. You might have arguing at your house, but the, the ideal is, is that you sit around a table. It's a safe of safety, protection, rest, comfort, blessing, relationships. That's what happens around a dinner table. And he says, you prepare a place like that while my enemies are still present. Now, I want to stop here just for a moment because you've wondered, I suspect, like you, me, how can God ignore the fact that we have enemies and still prepare a place for us where we can be safe even though our enemies are still present? First, let me just give you a definition of what an enemy is. Who is the enemy? What is an enemy? An enemy is someone who, you write this down and talk about this because it's really important to clarify this. It's someone who intentionally causes you harm without repentance. So an enemy is not a person that violates you, hurts your feelings, realizes it. Oh my gosh, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Please forgive me. That's not an enemy. That's someone who made a mistake and they need to be forgiven, right? That's just someone who messed up. That's not an enemy. An enemy is actually someone who causes you harm, realizes that they cause you harm, and has no, no uh, they're not going to repent. No intention of repenting to you. In other words, it's someone who doesn't want you to thrive. I don't know if you've ever had a real enemy before, but listen, even in the presence of those kinds of people, even in the presence of that kind of group of people that may have opposed you, I have good news for you today. Psalm 23 says, I'm going to prepare a place for you to thrive 
even when your enemies are still present in your life. In other words, God does not always get rid of our enemies. But he is, does want to get rid of two things that our enemy causes us. Okay, write this down for me. There are two things that God wants to deliver us from that enemies cause us to have. Okay, so enemies do something to our soul, and God is determined to set us free from these two things. Number one, he wants us to be free from fear. Now, as a young man, 15 years old, feeling frail, I felt vulnerable as a 15-year-old. When I went to that school, and this had been going on for several years, in fact, Later on, when I got older, I actually told my mom and dad all the things that were happening at this school. This was not, had not just started my freshman year. It had started long, but several years before. The systemic aggravation and bullying and mistreatment and fights and intimidation, it was a, the culture of the school was built around that. And when I told my mom and dad the entire story, they were mortified. And I just want to encourage parents, don't take uh, your kid's uh, first response about what's going on in their lives as truth. Sometimes you have to kind of probe a little bit. You have to kind of be a, a busybody sometimes. And uh, helicopter parents are not always bad. Sometimes you need to hover over your kids. Sometimes you need to know more than what they're telling you. And you need to do a little investigation sometimes to realize that maybe your kids are confronting something you weren't aware of. If I, when I finally told my mom and dad, they... Um, they, they said it right. In fact, when I got home from that incident, I'll tell you this one part of the story. When I got home from, from that, that incident, I had that red mark around my neck. And of course, I got home and I covered it up, you know, with my collar. I didn't want my dad to see. And I probably could have hid it from my dad. But the problem was I had a mom. And you can't hide anything from your mother, right? And my mom saw it that night. And she said, Son, what is that on your neck? Of course, I lied. And she made me show her the red spot around my neck. And she went and told my dad. My dad looked at it and said, Son, you're not going to go to school tomorrow. I'm going to go to school. Now, I want to stop here and pause for a moment. It's, it's fortunate for the people at school that my dad went and not my mom. <laughs> Come on, all the, mom, all the mama bears in the room, can I hear an amen? My mom, I would still be visiting my mom in prison if she had gone. My dad had a little more restraint, but, and I don't know what happened when my dad went to the school. I don't know. To his deathbed, he did not tell me. what He would not tell me. All I know is that when I showed back up that afternoon for baseball practice, the Lord had prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies, and they never bothered me again. I was never bothered. The principal was my best friend. The coach treated me like a prince. Those seniors were terrified of me. I don't know what my dad threatened or what guns he showed. I don't know. I don't know what happened. It was not legal. It was not righteous. I can just tell you that. Because something remarkable happened. But you know what happened in my soul is from that day forward, I realized that my earthly dad would intervene. And something lifted off of me. Even to this day, I'm 54 years old. I have zero tolerance for bullying. I just, don't, I just don't have any tolerance for it. I don't like to be bullied. I don't like other people to be bullied. Because I have seen what the powerful can do to the powerless unless someone steps in sometimes and intervenes. And this is, this is what I want you to hear today. Your Father in heaven 
is not going to always let this go on. Nahum was telling the people of Israel, this is not always going to be your reality. I am going to free you from fear. Israel had been crippled with fear. The Assyrians were living rent-free in their minds. I mean, the, the, the thought of this powerful army consuming them and torturing them and separating them was constantly in their mind. And he says, I will not let you be controlled by fear. The second thing he wants you to be free from is he wants you to be free from offense. I'll tell you what happens when you, when you become afraid. When someone causes you to be fearful, you end up hating that people. You hate the people that make you afraid. This is human, the human condition since the beginning. We tend to become angry and offended at the people that cause us to feel afraid. And he wants us to be free from this offense. So Paul, who was ended up in prison, wrote to a group of people who were being persecuted and remind them, how do you respond to a people who are persecuting you? I just read this to you out of Colossians chapter 3. Verse 12, he says, Therefore as God's chosen people. This is the exact same language that Nahum used. You're God's chosen people. That's why God's protecting you. You're in his covenant. Now, Paul is reminding the Gentiles, you've been grafted into this agreement. You've been grafted into this holy agreement. And as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance. Now, this is the word I want you to focus on here. This word grievance means that you have facts to support your claim. So it's not something you're making up. A grievance is a real thing. You've had real harm caused to you by real people, and there's real evidence to support it. He says, if you have a grievance against someone, if, he says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, when I hear that, I'm reminded that I really don't have any other choice but to forgive. Because we're about to enter into the holy season, right? You're about to come up on Good Friday. And on Good Friday, we talk about the seven last sayings of Jesus right on the cross. You know what one of them is? The most powerful thing he said on the cross is, Father, forgive them. That's a, then we have no other option. Jesus was falsely accused. If anyone had a grievance against the human race, it was Jesus. If anyone had been mistreated, it was Jesus. So when Jesus chooses to forgive as God's people, we only have one option, and that's to forgive. So I am free from fear, and I'm free from this, this grievance, free from offense. So I want you to remind you of three quick things this morning, and I want you to think about this this week. Three things that I want to remind you of if you ever find yourself surrounded by your enemies. If you ever feel overwhelmed, bullied, intimidated, I want you to remind you of three things. Number one, God sees it. Do not let the enemy ever convince you that God does not see what you're going through right now. God sees it. And I can tell you as a 15-year-old, there were lots of nights I would go home wondering if he knew what was going on with me. Because this was multiple things. One, two, three, five, I mean, dozens of things that happened to me. And I began to think, God, do you not see what's happening here? Do you not see me? 
And I found out God does see it. And if God sees it, then his response is going to be justice. God sees it and God is just. In other words, God will always handle your case with integrity. God will always, listen, you need to hear this. God will always handle your case with absolute integrity. That's what justice means. He sees right, he sees wrong, and he will judge fairly and judge correctly on your behalf at some point. So God sees it, God is just, which means that God will act. In fact, justice requires our action. Justice without action is just good intentions. And God didn't call us to good intentions. God called us to good works. And those works oftentimes means that we step into places where the powerful are taking advantage of the powerless. And it's the church that steps into the bridge and says, okay, hope, this is right, this is just, this is the action we should take. This is how the church brings justice to the earth. This, is our, this has always been our assignment. God sees it. God is just. And God will act. I want to tell you the story of, of, of a girl named Jenny. And you're going you're to love her. I love her. I just think the world of her. She is one of the toughest women I have ever met in my life. But her story started in a little apartment where her boyfriend, her drug addict boyfriend, she was pregnant. Jenny got pregnant from this drug addict boyfriend. And he was a controlling, bullying manipulative guy. In fact, he was so concerned that she was going to run away that he locked her in a, a basically a walk-in closet every day when he would go to work. So he would go to work, lock her in a closet, give her food and water like a dog, and then she would stay in that closet until he got home. This is an awful situation. Well, she figured out, and you'll love this part of the story, especially when I tell you the end of it, but she figured out how to take the baseboard off the bottom of the floor, and, and, and she used that baseboard to wedge her way out of the closet one day, so she broke free. She breaks the door down, it's there on the kitchen table is a set of car keys and a little bit of cash. She grabs them, runs outside, gets in the car, and starts driving. Now, she's not a believer at this point, but she cried out to God, and she says, she tells the story, God spoke to her, drive to Colorado Springs, that's where I'm from, and so if this was hundreds, almost a thousand miles away with a little bit of money and a car almost on empty. She said, I drove and drove and drove till my car ran out of gas and I pulled into the gas station. She said, I got out of the car. She's pregnant, six or seven months pregnant at this point. And she said, I just stood there and I prayed, Father, I need someone to see me. This is why she prayed. And she said the very first time she prayed that a little lady walked over to her car and said, honey, are you okay? Because she was obviously distraught. She was emotional. She's pregnant and not knowing what to do. And the little lady said, are you okay? And, and so she told her, I just, I'm out of gas. I don't have any food. So the lady fills up her car, car tank for her, goes inside the convenience store and brings her out some sandwiches. And she said, I got back on the road. And she said, every time I would stop out of gas, out of food, someone would walk up to me asked me how they could help me, and she said, I found myself time and time again being rescued by good Samaritans. And she said, I ended up in Colorado Springs, and when she got there, she had just enough money to rent a storage unit. 
Now, this is happening, by the way, in Phoenix, Scottsdale, because it's happening in my city. A lot of people tonight are sleeping in storage units. So they pull their car into the storage unit, shut the door. That's all they can afford. That's happening all over our, our nation right now. And so she started sleeping in the storage unit, and she said she, she would go out to the dumpster, and she said, you know, rich people throw away a really nice furniture. She couldn't believe some of the furniture she was finding in the dumpster. And so she would crawl into the dumpster, dumpster diving, and pull out this furniture, and she taught herself how to refurbish old furniture. And then she would take it down to the public library and use their computer and put it on Craigslist. And she said, I learned I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm good with wood, which I thought was funny because how she broke out of the closet. You know, obviously, that was the first clue. You're good with woodworking. And so she began to refurbish all this furniture and made enough money to keep the storage unit rented. And then it came time for her to give birth. And she's living in a storage unit. And when she shows up the, at the emergency room, she knows that if she has to tell them where she's living, if they find out that she's basically homeless, that there's a good chance that baby is going to be taken from her until she can get on her feet. And she's sobbing. The fear of that, the, the worry of that is overwhelming her. So she's in the ER, in labor, trying to find some hope somewhere. And this little sweet nurse, I don't know how many of you are nurses, but the, listen, you're, you're God's hands and feet to very desperate people at times. And a, a young lady who was an RN walked over to her and calmed her down, prayed for her, heard her story, and she said, she called us. Now, let me back up for a moment, because a few years ago, we bought an apartment complex called Mary's Home, and we remodeled it, paid cash for it. Every apartment in that is a, just a clean, beautiful apartment complex, and it is completely full today with homeless single moms with their children. And it's called Mary's Home because one of the other seven last sayings of Jesus on the cross was Jesus said to John, take care of my mother because she was a single mom when Jesus passed away. So we call it Mary's Home. We had one room available the night that the nurse called. And she called us and said, I have a mom who's about to give birth. I, can you help her? We said, yes. So she ends up at Mary's home. She's there for a year and a half. Her life completely changes. The whole trajectory of her life is radically altered. And so she came back about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and spoke to our graduating class of other moms who were graduating. And I love what she said. She said, I'm an entrepreneur. I have my own company. I, re I refurbish old furniture. Last year, I made $65,000, and she was so proud of it. She says, I'm on no government assistance. I am fully self-supporting. I'm volunteering at my church. I look after little kids in the nursery. I'm involved in my local church, and I believe God has restored my life because he saw me. He acted justly on my behalf. Listen, I just came here today to tell you a story. God sees you. And God is just. And God will take action on your behalf. I know this for myself, and I know it because of the story of Jenny. I can tell you story after story after story. But I want to encourage you today. Some of you need to hear this. God sees you. you, haven't, you your story has not been lost on Jesus. Jesus sees you. God is just, and God will act.
Can I pray for you this morning? Let me just pray for you. I want to pray over you. And I, don't, this, I know this message does not apply to everyone because not all of you have felt bullied. But the reason I'm telling the story to everyone is because you're going to come in contact with people who have been. You're going to come in contact with people who have been on the other side of that. And it's important for Christ followers today to, to know how we can step in. How can we come alongside? How can we hear their story, understand their story? How can we come alongside them? How can we give them hope? And I believe that that's what our mission is today. In just a moment, you're going to be dismissed. You're going to be scattered all across the valley today. All this week, I just pray you'd keep your eyes open. Tune your heart into whatever opportunity God may put in front of you. You never know when you're going to bump into some single mom, some person that's in despair, and your kindness and your generosity can be the very pivotal point, can be the place where God meets them and rescues them. Simple acts of kindness, simple things can turn into powerful things. So I want to pray today. Father in heaven, thank you that you rescued us. Father, there's not one person in the room that has not needed rescue. <clears throat> Lord, we need rescue from our own sin. We need rescue from our own disobedience. So Lord, today we've all been at a place spiritually, physically, emotionally, where we needed someone to intervene for us. Father in heaven, I thank you today that you are God, our defender. You are the God who comes to our rescue. And Father, I pray today for the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ over everyone in the room. For all those watching online, I just pray for the grace and the peace of the Lord. I pray, Lord, today that you would surround them and overshadow them and undergird them. I pray today that you would be an ever-present help in times of trouble. And Lord, I thank you today that you prepare a table in front of us, for us, even in the presence of our enemies, you prepare a table, a place where we can recline and rest and eat and be restored. Even when our enemies are still present, you have provided a table for us. And Father, I just pray today we'd all come to the table of the Lord today, to the place of your presence, and we'd receive goodness and grace on our lives. I pray this now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. So good to be with you guys. It's always a joy to be with you. God bless you guys. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.